Good morning and welcome to Legal Defense with Kirk and John, except today it's just Kirk. Uh, I'm Kirk O'Bear and John is uh, in the middle of a big investigation that we have going on. We had to track down some witnesses this weekend, so um, he's off doing that. And as usual, I'll join him later after the show. But uh, this week... I'm going to talk about something that might seem kind of boring to some, but in reality, it's uh, there's a bigger picture here. And I'm going to talk about the rules of the road, and specifically, I'm going to start off by talking about equipment regulation. <laughs> okay? Doesn't sound very exciting, right? But um, we have a very intricate set of rules that are embodied in both our statutes and regulations that relate to how vehicles have to comply with certain standards. And it includes things like, you know, how your brakes work and the lighting of your vehicle. Um, there's a specific case that just came out that deals with how your rear license plate must be illuminated. And it's one of the things that I think about when I'm driving around because I see all over the place people that are technically violating uh, many of these rules of the road and equipment rules that we have in statutes. So this case arose out of a traffic stop. And the stop was based on the fact that the officer saw the rear plate of this vehicle and it was illuminated by a not quite white uh, lamp in the back. And the law requires that the license plate of any vehicle, the rear license plate of any vehicle, be illuminated by a white light. And it was bluish. So the officer pulled the vehicle over. And the reason why most of these cases end up going up on appeal is because there's a challenge of some sort to the original traffic stop, the reason behind it. And then, invariably... If it's something that does get appealed, it's because of the fact that that initial traffic stop turns into another investigation. And in this case, sure enough, they found contraband in the vehicle. One thing led to another, and, and that's how it usually goes. I'm not saying that happens in every traffic stop. It's just that by the time it reaches an appeal and there's a discussion about the law and what should or shouldn't happen, then there's... Uh, it's because they found something bad in the vehicle, right? Um, now, it could be appealed just on whether or not um, a, this particular traffic stop was valid or not. But as I was saying, as I'm driving around all the time, I see vehicles all around me that are not in compliance with the law. And it always fascinates me that you can go on... Um, Amazon or, for that matter, into any of these auto parts stores and find, you know, customization or upgrade type things to your vehicle, including things like window tint and stuff like that, that aftermarket modifications that you can apply to your vehicle if you wish. However, you're doing something that renders it technically illegal. And I say technically just because... If the police actually pulled every single person over for all of these equipment violations, they'd be far too busy to do important stuff. But, um, so you can see why this is one of those things. Now let's take a step back. It's 
obviously important to have regulation of you know, how motor vehicles are supposed to be operated for safety reasons. And clearly a, a license plate needs to be illuminated so it can be seen, right? That makes sense. In hours of darkness, if it's not illuminated, then people can't see what the vehicle plate plate number is, etc. Um, but, and I get it that, you know, we have to have these rules, we have to create these laws in order to have things be somewhat uniform in that area. In the sense that, that the, again, the goal is to have the public protected, to have it be something that there are certain standards out there to try and increase our level of public safety in the very dangerous act of operating a motor vehicle. So getting back to this case, the officer believes it's a blue light. And I say believes just because it wasn't like, you know, blue, blue, blue. It was kind of blue, but kind of, kind of white, you know, somewhere in the middle there. And, you know, there's that type of lighting that can almost appear blue, even though it's white. Well, anyway, you know where this is going, right? So officer pulls the vehicle over, says, hey, you've got an illegal tail lamp. One thing leads to another, gets arrested for something completely different. Um, but the original reason for the stop was this tail lamp. So this falls in this, uh, as I said, very broad category of regulation of vehicles. Did you know that if you do anything, practically anything to change the tint of your windows, then, and, and this is a subjective matter. Now there is something called a tint meter that law enforcement officers have where they can actually measure how much tint there is on the windows. And there's a difference between the driver's window, the front window, the passenger window, the rear windows can have different levels of tint. But when you buy a vehicle from the factory or that hasn't been modified, it, com it complies with those standards, typically, okay? <laughs> so I did have a case years ago where somebody bought a vehicle that was I don't recall what kind it was, but it was kind of an unusual vehicle. And the factory model, the one that came out of the, the actual car factory, had slightly illegal tint. And uh, we litigated the fact that when someone buys a car and doesn't do anything to change it, is that person entitled to rely upon the fact that there's a reasonable belief that it does comply with that law. I mean, imagine the surprise that when an officer pulls you over, you've done nothing to change your vehicle. It's exactly like it was when you bought it, new, nobody else drove it or did anything to it. And the officer says, oh, you have illegal window tint. Or let's just say the officer thinks you have illegal window tint because it looks that way. But it turns out that it is legal. Or as I said, this other case that I had years ago, turns out that it wasn't according to the officer's tint meter. Now, let me make an analogy. Let's say you go to one of these uh, CBD or hemp shops and you buy something that you think legally complies with the definition of industrial hemp. It has to contain less than a certain percentage of active delta-9 tetrahydrocannabinol in it in order to qualify as industrial hemp and therefore be legal to buy and possess and sell and so on. What happens if it turns out 
in the production process or through whatever um, set of circumstances leads this purported CBD to have too much THC in it. And you didn't know that. When you bought it, you were under the impression that that wasn't the case. Uh, what is there a defense there? Well, in that situation, if you're being charged with possession of marijuana, which the definition under Wisconsin law is that it contains a detectable amount of delta-9 tetrahydrocannabinol, then you've got a problem <laughs> because you are in possession of something that is illegal. But if you were going to be prosecuted for that, there would be an element of that offense that the state, the prosecutor, would have to prove that you knew that or should have known that, you know, because after all, defining knowledge, what somebody actually knows is almost an impossible burden, right? It's like, because unless somebody comes out and says they know, and I knew it was wrong, it's very hard to prove. So a lot of times there's this should have known standard that's put in there as well under the circumstances. So in that situation, yes, you would have a defense and say, hey, I mean, the label said it was legal. It was, I know that uh, CBD products are legal in Wisconsin. I, you know, I relied on that and I bought it. The problem is, if we're talking about something like an equipment violation, those are uh, what we call strict liability offenses. So you don't have a defense to say you were unaware. And that's very interesting in the law because there's a very, very limited class of quote-unquote, offenses that have no mental requirement, no knowledge requirement. But equipment violations are some of those. It you, you, doesn't matter if you know or don't know. So that ultimately was the issue when it came down to this vehicle that ha just happened to have purportedly illegal tint on the windows is that too bad if it, it is or it isn't. It doesn't matter if you knew it or not. And a lot of people think that's unfair, but... That's part of the regulation aspect of the rules of the road. And we'll get it, we'll come back after the break and talk about how all the intricate details that are law about operating a vehicle that you're presumed to know. We'll be right back. Welcome back. As I said, we're going to talk about things that everybody is presumed to know in the law. And you've heard the old saying, ignorance of the law is no defense. And I've talked about this before on this show, but that is a rule of convenience because there's no logical alternative. How could you have a system of law that requires proof that the person knew what the law was? So, I mean, it's that's preposterous, but it's also kind of preposterous that everybody would know all these details as to what is in the law, including what's legal and what's illegal. There's this sort of gray area where we just assume that all citizens break out the statute books. And trust me, it's some pretty dry, boring reading if you, if you don't know specifically what you're looking for. I mean, for me, I know what I'm looking at and what I'm looking for. But if you just read these statutes from start to finish, it's not... It's not like, uh, you know, very entertaining reading. For, and I, I seriously doubt that most citizens 
do that, right? You don't just break open the statute books and start reading to see what's in there. Now, if you're a legislator or a lawyer or a judge or something like that, sure, I mean, you study the law, you study what's in there. But you know, every lawyer that practices actively has a set of the Wisconsin statute books sitting on a shelf somewhere. It's also obviously available on the internet and can be looked at at the legislative websites, right? So these these laws are made, and, and all of the processes by which they debate what something should be, and let's create this law to do this, and let's do this to do that, a lot of it is uh, so intricate that citizens that are going about their daily lives doing stuff other than law stuff um, can't possibly know all these details. And that's really one of the big issues because we have this notion in the enforcement of laws, especially criminal laws, that there should be a deterrent effect on other people that when they see Joe Schmo broke a law and they see what the consequences are, that the rest of our society will take heed and say, oh, I shouldn't do that thing. Um, but you'd be surprised. Well, maybe you wouldn't be surprised, but it's so often that I'm representing somebody who's accused of something that they either had no idea it was against the law or in their own mind, they were doing that thing in such a way that they didn't realize it was against the law, but that doesn't matter. Now, we were talking before about uh, the mental element of an offense and how equipment violations and other aspects of how your vehicle is, you know, how it's equipped and how it operates and how it works are strict liability offenses. Strict liability meaning you can't raise a defense that you didn't know about it. Just like speeding. Speeding is strict liability. If you're going over the speed limit, it doesn't matter if you knew you were going over the speed limit. It doesn't matter if your speedometer wasn't working correctly. It doesn't matter if uh, you had a very good reason for speeding. It reminds me of another case I had years ago. I, I had a client who was behind this big, uh, it was like a junk tr truck that had like a bunch of stuff in it. It was over packed with like garbage and stuff and it's falling out of the vehicle right so my clients behind this it's like a Sanford and Son type truck you know with like stuff just like kind of falling out now that operator the, of the vehicle that was in front of my client's vehicle was violating laws all over the place because it was an improperly loaded vehicle you're not allowed to have debris falling out of the back of your vehicle littering the roadway right so what my client did is that he in his own judgment decided that it was in the interest of his safety to pass this vehicle so he wasn't behind it and all this stuff was falling out naturally as things turn out in these types of situations there happens to be a police officer there that observes this person speeding, pulls him over. Says, do you know why I pulled you over? And he said, yeah, probably because I was speeding, but, 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 but. Well, the officer's like, well, doesn't matter. You just admitted to speeding. I was speeding. I was 
not speeding before, and I was behind this vehicle, and all this stuff is coming out, and it's is dangerous. So what's the right thing to do in that situation? Well, it turns out <laughs> that you can call the police and say, hey, there's this vehicle that's dumping things all over the place, or take an alternate route, or pull over, let it get ahead of you for quite some time. But apparently, according to the outcome of that case, the right answer is not to speed around that vehicle because there's no defense. No no actual defense to speeding. Now, I say that, then the case actually did work out very well. But, um, you know, it, I'm talking about the basic essentials of how the law works, particularly as it relates to strict liability. So going back to this case we were talking about at the beginning of the show, where the person has a bluish light over their license plate. And... Um, I don't know if it was an issue in that case, but one could certainly say, hey, I bought it at this auto parts store. Uh, they didn't say anything about it. Hey, you can't install this because it'll render your vehicle illegal. Of course not. I mean, if they said that for all those things they sell, no one would buy them, right? Well, maybe they would. I don't know. But but <laughs> I know that feeling. You're, when you're walking through one of those stores, you're like, oh, that's something cool I could do to my car. Um and then, you know, unbeknownst to you, you've just done something that, that makes it so that basic principle that is supposed to be the bedrock of our society is that you're free to go about your business unmolested by the police, whether you're doing something wrong or not, by the way, unless there's a legal reason for the police to interfere with you going about your, your way. So uh, you see why I said at the beginning of the show that, that you know, there's a bigger picture here. Because these rules become the basis for increased interaction between police and private citizens that are attempting to go about their business on their own. There was a report earlier this week that in, uh, in a, a county that is um, not, not in this part of the state, but in another part of the state of Wisconsin, had this... Uh, interdiction crackdown weekend where they uh, deliberately stepped up their law enforcement to have maximum interaction with drivers on the roadway. This happened a couple weekends ago. And then they had a press release about how many vehicles they were able to pull over and all, all the drug busts and things like that that occurred as a result of this stepped-up enforcement effort. And the thing that I find interesting about that scenario is that it implies that oftentimes, you know, the police don't have reasons to pull people over, but this weekend we're going to come up with reasons. <laughs> and that sounds bad, but, but that's true. <laughs> I mean, that's really, that is what happens. Because... You know, you look for a reason and, and step it up and focus on busting people. So why? Why does that happen? Um, there's a lot of different reasons, but this was basically so that that particular county could have bragging rights about, you know, busting all these people for various things. And when when that sort of thing happens, I find it very distressing because... You never know if uh, 
you know, you're going to fall. Not that, not that you're doing anything wrong. That doesn't matter, okay? Think about you're just going about your business, doing what you normally would do, not hurting anybody, living in this free country um, where we have the standard of do do what you want, don't hurt anybody, you're fine, you know, type thing. And all of a sudden there's some weekend where no matter what you do or don't do, you're probably going to get pulled over for some reason. And there's a big element of this that I've been sort of hinting at, and that is the guesswork that's involved in this process. As I mentioned earlier, there's uh, the issue of whether a light on the back of a vehicle really is a white light or a bluish light or a big red light or whatever. There's some subjectivity that's built into that decision. So we'll talk more about that when we come back right after these messages. Let me give you some examples of various reasons why vehicles get pulled over. We've talked about speeding. We've talked about window tint. But there's another area of law that deals with suspected activities and a police officer's perception of what is going on. And remembering that there's a dual purpose behind law enforcement. By the way, law enforcement was not ever mentioned in the Constitution. The, the, the concept of the relationship between citizens and the government is talked about a lot, but there is no such thing as police, really. You, you know, they, well, certainly that word wasn't applied, you know, in colonial America. It was the government officials, okay? So as time's gone by and, and just the trend became that part of regulation of conduct in various communities resulted in the creation of police departments, right? And sheriff's offices and things like that. Um, so think about the fact that when an officer has to determine whether or not to take that next step, which is to break through the standard, the norm. The norm is you go about your business. So the officer is going to do something to change that dynamic and then and initiate an interaction between a government official and a citizen protected by constitutional rights. So it's a significant step. It's something that is supposed to be a weighty decision that is not done willy-nilly or just on chance or just because somebody feels like it. But over the years, we've developed this other, as we say, the dual role of law enforcement. One is to help, protect, serve, all that stuff. So if you're lost, an officer might ask you, are you lost? Can I help you? If you're a little old lady who's crossing the street and there's no Boy Scouts around, well then, yes, an officer might say, yes, ma'am, may I help you across the street? Or just the presence of, of an officer in the community or in a school in order to provide guidance and, and the presence being something that gives people peace of mind, whatever. So that's all part of this um, helping role of law enforcement. And sure, we appreciate that. But the other side is when 
an officer is doing something that is uh, directly in conflict with the preservation of our individual freedoms. And as I said, it's a weighty issue when an officer decides to inject him or herself into uh, the person's business. Now, obviously, this is how crime gets detected and investigated every day in our country. And that's how and why we have trials and everything else, because law enforcement is our method, our modern method of gathering evidence um, in order to support those prosecutions. Again, going back to what was originally envisioned in our Constitution and the Bill of Rights is that this would be we wanted to make sure that whatever form in the future the governments of the individual states and ultimately the federal government would take is that it wouldn't be something where people would fear the government, that they would be looking over their shoulder every minute, um, wondering what sneaky things the government's going to do in order to achieve its own agenda in violation of people's sense of security, their right to feel free. That's that's the thing that's so outstanding about this document in our United States is that it embodies that sense of pride in being a citizen of this country. Now, of course, we know back when that was written, it didn't mean everybody, right? We just talked about this last week, how you know women weren't considered citizens, really, you know, uh, back then, in terms of the right to vote, the you know, they didn't count as people. Slaves counted as partial people, you know, in the Constitution. So, you know, the methodology behind it all was is obviously something that was uh, different at the time, but the embodiment of these these ideals, the, the things that we say make us American, they're in there. They're, they're part of that document and set of supporting documents that come through the amendments. And you're supposed to look for the, the feel that's in there and what it means to, to enjoy that security and sense of freedom. Freedom, you know, the concept of freedom, something that uh, is a defining characteristic of our society. Well, we have other problems in our society and, and we end up relying upon law enforcement to have these interactions with us. And you hear all the time, if you're not doing anything wrong, why why would you have a problem with an officer uh, pulling you over or having a chat with you or whatever? And I suppose that's a very noble way of looking at it, but it also is something that has to be constantly checked and challenged. Because if we as a society become complacent in our view that that's okay, and if you don't exercise rights, they will eventually go away, is, is a theory that's out there. And it's, pro it's probably absolutely true. So defending against these arbitrary, random, or otherwise unsupported interactions with citizens, as I said in this county earlier, a couple weeks ago, where they had announced that they had these big busts going on because they tried harder <laughs> to to pull people over is disconcerting uh, they would have it that you that that there were always reasons to pull all these people over all the time they just didn't do it because they were doing other stuff so this particular weekend they paid close attention and pulled everybody over 
<laughs> so I was talking about the subjectivity aspect that's here. And the law actually does allow for the fact that a uh, police officer, law enforcement officer, does not have to be perfect when it comes to perception or accuracy of perception, I should say. It's built in there. There's some wiggle room, right? Because it's a subjective determination. What do I mean by that? Well, let's use our taillight case as an example. Let's say the light itself is 100% legal. It's a white light that shines on the license plate. It's not blue. But the officer, for whatever reason, because of the conditions that night, or maybe this officer doesn't have the same color vision that, that enables one to clearly distinguish between those things, or let's say it's a light that has, it just looks a little different, but it's still legally white. Well, is an officer allowed to pull somebody over because there's a guess as to the legality of this situation, and it turns out later that the officer is wrong? Well, the law says yes, as long as it was a reasonable mistake. So I've just used two words that are very hard to define because there's no bright line rule. The word subjective and the word reasonable. So, in other words, uh, and let's go back to this interdiction weekend that happened in this other county. Officers basically utilized their quote-unquote subjective judgment in ways to enable them to pull more vehicles over. And if you know what I mean by that, it means that uh, there's two ways or multiple ways of looking at every situation. And if you choose to look at it a certain way, your the permission that we, or the leeway that we grant in acknowledging the subjectivity that's part of that analysis can, can go in the favor of supporting that traffic stop. So this is fascinating if you think about it. Um, it you, you can have... And let me talk more about the tint. You could have your vehicle completely legal as far as the tinting of the windows. And if, it's off, and if an officer thinks, maybe not, and pulls you over on the belief that it just looks like at that moment that the tint might be too dark, the officer pulls you over, checks the tint, turns out it's okay. But in that process, uh, the officer smells an odor of alcohol or sees a gun or whatever. And then it turns into this other investigation. That traffic stop can be supported by the prosecution in saying that, it, yeah, it was a mistake, but it was a reasonable mistake. Under the circumstances, the officer had a very reasonable belief that the vehicle was not in compliance with the equipment code. Turns out later that the officer was wrong, but hey, nobody's perfect. So... We want to have that traffic stop validated, supported, and then the evidence that's gathered afterwards, the prosecution wants to use it in a case against the driver. So you kind of see where there's a potential problem here. Well, we'll talk more when we come back right after these messages. Have you heard that old expression, the ends justify the means? And that's not to say that that's right or proper, but it's a theory that in order to achieve something that's good, you might be able to do something that's bad, right? That's a very basic sort of breakdown of what that could mean. So 
in in the process of uh, keeping the road free of criminals, uh, the ends are to you know, rid the streets of bad guys and bad gals. And in order to achieve that, the bending of the rules a little bit in order to make sure that there's a maximum opportunity to have citizen interaction is something that, frankly, I believe is encouraged in law enforcement departments. And again, I'm not saying anything bad or negative about law enforcement in and of itself. I'm simply pointing out that there's this window of opportunity and it, it, it affects the sense of security that we all have. I, when I am driving and an officer is behind me, even though I'm doing absolutely nothing wrong, I've had nothing to drink, I don't have anything illegal in my car, I'm going the speed limit, I know that my car is 100% legit, there's no nothing wrong with it, <laughs> I know I don't have any warrants out, but when an officer's driving behind me, I think, like like most people, you still feel a little bit nervous, right? Only because you know that, I know that anyway, when someone is in close proximity to you operating a an official law enforcement vehicle, they're watching you looking for a reason to pull you over. And that's that's just the truth. And it doesn't matter what happens afterwards, it's just that you know, it's it's very obvious to me, and I think to most people that, um, you know, you're kind of watching to see what's going to happen next. Is all I'm saying, and I, I think that's a symptom of the fact that a lot of these uh, so-called rules that we have have gone too far in permitting an increased exposure uh, or increased incidence of uh, contact between law enforcement and citizens. You know, I know they don't say this anymore, but years ago I recall um, dealing with cases in a particular county, not Sheboygan County, but another county uh, up in the, let's just say the Fox Valley area, where through an investigation I discovered that there was one particular law enforcement agency that was um, utilizing metrics as a way to determine the promotability and um, overall job performance of their law enforcement officers by applying these statistics or metrics, right? And one of them was the percentage of self-initiated citizen contacts. And I'll never forget that, hearing that phrase and wondering, what is that? <laughs> well, Okay, so an officer could be out there, and if they get dispatched to a call, well, that doesn't count as self-initiated because somebody else uh, called in uh, an emergency. So, oh, that doesn't go in your column as a good thing, right? Obviously, you still have to <laughs> respond and do what they say, but but one of the measurements that would you know, more or less grade the success rate of that law enforcement officer's promotability and where they're you know they're standing within the department is the number per month of these self-initiated traffic stops self-initiated so that means an officer's looking and observing and waiting and when that 
cop sees something that they can use to justify an arrest, they act on it. Now, interestingly, when we got into the nitty-gritty of this, it didn't matter in terms of promotability and and rising uh, one stature, pay, benefits, everything within that department. Didn't matter if the arrest was resulted in, if the stop resulted in an arrest. That didn't matter. What mattered was the officer's were being graded, rated, more or less, on their on their effectiveness based on how many times, and obviously the more the better, how many times they had contact with citizens that was not in response to a call or an, uh, in response to, uh, you know, an emergency of some sort, but because of observations that were made that justified that stop. So, um... <laughs> we made a lot of hay over that, and it was interesting because that particular police department um, ended up being very embarrassed by having that policy. But I know that it still exists. It may not be in those exact words. But, yeah, I think that there is definitely an encouragement of people within any given uh, police situation to maximize the amount of contact you have with citizens that you, based on things you come up with yourself out of your own brain, uh, based on all of these, the, the arsenal of tools that law enforcement has are these laws, these laws that we're all deemed to know, whether we know them or not, and giving giving reasons for these interactions with, with the public, hopefully leading to a number of arrests and press releases and people bragging about how how many people got arrested for stuff, you know? So... In that in that realm of where does it cross the line into something that is illegal? Well, all of that, uh, and I mean illegal in terms of illegal police activity, all of that is uh, handled within the court system, which is an extremely complicated, time-consuming, taxpayer-funded process. So that's part of the philosophy is that most people, when they become ensnared in some situation that was a let's say it was a self-initiated citizen contact without probable cause without reasonable suspicion or at least it's debatable and the, and the reason actual reason for the traffic stop is something that may have been a mistake but still happened right um the way to challenge those things is costly to someone making the challenge it's an arduous, long process, and frankly, it's against the odds. Uh, so there's a lot of discouragement as far as testing the system and where and how uh, the real legitimacy of any particular traffic stop or traffic, you know, or for that matter, just uh, interaction in any way. You know, it often fascinates me because I handle so many cases all over the state and in, in federal courts as well. But it fascinates me how the vast majority of situations that I see involve people waiving rights that, you know, we've all worked very hard to preserve. I mean, we, we are this nation of people over the course of centuries now have had these ideals in place and people have died in wars in order to keep them protected 
uh, it's it's a sacred set of principles that we're talking about. And I would say, you know, 95% of the time, someone who should invoke one of those rights, one or more of those rights, ends up waiving them to their detriment constantly. I see it all the time. Consenting to a search of your home without a warrant and without probable cause. I see it all the time. Why? Waiving your right to remain silent or waiving your right to an attorney. Why? Uh, allowing the police to you know, search your vehicle without probable cause, without a warrant. Why? Why would you do that? Well, the reason why people end up doing those things is because there's been a constant, sh you know, an ongoing shift in our view of what our own rights are and whether they're difficult to invoke. Difficult to invoke, right? So you know, everybody knows that the police can't just come in your house and look around without a warrant. But, of course, they can ask you and if you say that's fine, then they never needed the warrant to begin with. They never needed probable cause. They never needed to think anything's wrong at all. They asked, and if you said yes, you just bypassed a huge part of what the Constitution is supposed to be all about. And when that becomes the norm, people start believing, and probably do believe at this point, that you don't have any choice. You don't have any option. Uh, you think that that's what you're supposed to do, even though it's not. You're supposed to say no. No, thank you, officer. If you don't have a warrant, I would uh, I decline your invitation to search my house. Hard thing to say these days. Anyway, that's all we have for this week. We'll tune in. You can tune in next week, as you can every week, right here on 1330 and 101.5. WHBL, this has been Legal Defense with Kirk and John. Have a great weekend.